This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello, happy Friday to you. It is the final Country Hour program for 2023. I wonder, how would you rate this year? Has it been a particularly good one for you? Or was 2023 a year you'd rather write off? 0448922604 is the SMS. I'm keen to get a one-line summary, maybe, I don't know, five words or less to sum up how 2023 looked for you in rural and regional WA, 0448922604. This afternoon, taking a good look at some of the hot weather you're set to experience, particularly in the north of the state, to bring in the new year. Close to 50 degrees in the Pilbara. It's pretty horrendous. You'll hear how crews out on cattle stations are keeping cool. And you're off to Australia's largest barramundi farm. So agriculture is, you know, the the fastest growing sector in agriculture in the world. So there's more farmed fish that are eaten than wild caught fish in the world globally. And Australians eat a, a huge amount of seafood and we could grow it all here. You'll get into the belly of the beast, or should I say the belly of the fish, before tw- uh, before one o'clock this afternoon again. If you'd like to get in touch and wrap up your 2023 in just a few words, 0448922604. It's seven past twelve. There's no doubt lithium has been one of the best performing commodities of 2023. And as a result, it's become the focus of an increasing number of deals. Last month, WA gold miner Pantoro sold its lithium, nickel, copper and cobalt rights at its Norseman gold operations to mineral resources. It was a deal worth $60 million and gold miner Orabanda Mining agreed to sell 65% of its mineral rights, excluding gold, to a subsidiary of West Farmers. Geologist and former mining analyst James Wilson expects there'll be more of this to come come, but he says it wasn't that long ago that gold miners were throwing lithium-covered rocks, known as pegmatites, onto the discard pile. Where you find gold, you often find pegmatites, and historically, if you look at places like Bounty, I think they were throwing a lot of this stuff away as waste back in the day, and a lot of people who worked at Bounty will tell you that they had spodumene crystals as long as they uh, toyed a Land Cruiser. So um, a lot of that's sitting on the waste dump at the moment. So it was originally... Um, you walk past it as a gold geologist and it's completely discounted as being barren for gold. And in this day and age now, with the battery metal space and the advent of the technology around it, uh, that has significantly changed. (laughs) What what are we seeing with some of the opportunities the gold miners that are entrenched and only interested in precious metals space they've got their ground locked away and they're not moving anytime soon but Mm. there's an opportunity isn't there for groups that want to come in and and get hold of those base metals and lithium rights isn't Um, it yeah we've seen that recently with pantoro and uh, minres selling their uh, their lithium rights there they're focused obviously on building their operations down there at norseman so that's a good focus to have but at the same time a lot of these junior companies can generate some interest by selling certain rights to certain um, uh, strategic metals, I guess. And you might see that going forward with a lot of juniors. You know, we've got sort of, we've discovered a a stretch of about 10 k's worth of pegmatites on our ground, some of it outcropping, some of it not. 
and that just goes straight into the same ground that's owned by Silver Lake next door. So there's no reason to think that those pegmatites don't exist anywhere else. It it's just stands to reason whether it's got any lithium concentration in it at some point, which is what we are focused on at the moment. I'm speaking to James Wilson. He's from Alchemy Resources, which has got ground tied up uh, near the Trans Access Line, about 100 kilometres east of Kalgoorlie Boulder. And they've been uh, traditionally looking for gold, but now they're more interested in lithium. And that's uh, a bit of a theme in the mining industry at the moment. Um, is it fair to say that, a bit of the, well, not the shine's coming off gold a bit, but in the market, there's more people interested in investing in lithium space? Yeah, I'd say a lot of your hot money, your speculative investment dollar from your, your retail investor and institutional investor as well sees lithium as a, uh, a really quick turn to make a decent profit. You know, as, a, as an explorer, if you come out with, you know, 10 metres at 1% in a drill hole, as we've seen with the, uh, the Lake Johnson area, you know, these, these stocks can go up, you know, tenfold in the space of weeks kind of thing. So uh, gold, you know, are you going to get the same result by coming out at 10 metres at 60 grams? You know, it'll give you a kick, but it's not going to give you a lithium kick. So... Uh, a lot of that money comes in and also the volumes come out as well very quickly. And that's, you know, that's the state of the world market, the global economy, is that people, their investment time horizon is very short at the moment. So it's trying to keep those investors. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see that continuing, that trend into 2024? Or is it a, a sort of a bubble that'll burst? Oh, I think so. I think, you know, the lithium, uh, you know, you can't replace lithium uh, in a battery at the moment. It's got the highest level of energy density for packing electrons into a particular, you know, battery for a car. So until someone comes up with a an alternative like a hydrogen battery or a stable hydrogen battery or a, some other kind of technology, then I think lithium is going to be here to stay for the while. I mean, you know, from what we see corporately, it's just frantic in the background. There's just everybody and anybody wants to get a seat at the table. So people in West Perth, in terms of real estate, the goldfields is, is what? Uh, location, location, location? Yeah, and, and traditionally a lot of people worked in very, you know, traditional areas. I mean, you the, the, the quote I had from a good friend geologist said that all of the lithium deposits that are currently operating were sticking out of the ground. No one's found one undercover yet, or no one's found a deposit that's going to be mined that is undercover, and that's the future. It's using technology better, using geophysics, using better geochemistry, and being smart. and And that's where lithium is 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 not as easy as as gold. You don't just drill a, a fault line and and stick a hole in, and you find a bit of gold. If you don't find it, you move on. These things are erratic, and, and they require a lot more smarts to find them. And they they do all sorts of crazy stuff. So, but if you find one, you know. 10 million tonne of lithium's uh, a, a very strategic uh, resource to have at the moment in the uh, in the market. And as we've seen with M&A and the corporate activity coming on, there's as a lot of people who don't have any problem finding a few hundred million dollars on a Monday morning to go and throw into a stock to go and uh, do blocking stakes and whatnot. So, yeah, it's it's significant. That's James Wilson, who's the CEO of Gold and Lithium Explorer Alchemy Resources. He was speaking with Jared Lucas about this evolving lithium industry in Western Australia. And it's the Goldfields region which could be of particular interest. The Goldfields, is, well, as the name would suggest, it's traditionally centred on precious metals. But geologist and mining analyst Dr Sandra Close says the region is a happy spot for lithium. Lithium is absolutely the mineral of fashion at the moment. And uh, over many years, you see some minerals going in and out of fashion. But lithium is in, obviously, along with a lot of the battery minerals too now. 
I find it absolutely fascinating, particularly around the the eastern goldfields in WA. Uh, Geologically, when the first nickel boom came on in the 60s, people were looking at the ultra-basic rocks that were prospective for nickel. Then what happened when the uh, modern gold boom began in the 80s, they were looking for the basic rocks uh, together uh, next door to the ultra-basic rocks. And that was where a lot of the gold was found again, or re-found uh, from the old times. And then more recently, with lithium in particular, all of the uh, rocks in between those uh, geological basic and ultra-basic rocks, they're far more acid, uh, granites and so on. And it's in those that you find lithium, because lithium is uh, a very light element it's actually the third element on the periodic table, but uh, it's uh, spread well and truly around in between the rocks that uh, have the nickel and have the gold. So WA has been a very happy spot, particularly in the, the gold fields and uh, wider areas than that. Do you think we'll see a few more gold miners that are obviously just interested in mining that precious metal and have no real interest in lithium, potentially considering selling off the uh, the rights to base metals and lithium? Well, I think most people in the mining industry are up, up to a deal if it's possible, and uh, you'll see these things happening. If it's economic for people so to do, some will be uh, interested in one thing, some in another, and some will be interested in having a go at the lot. So... Uh, I think it's up for grabs at the moment. It's Dr Sandra Close from mining consultancy Surbiton Associates. She was speaking with Jared Lucas, quarter past 12 on the country hour. Sticking with lithium, a Western Australian researcher believes he might have found a more sustainable and cost-effective alternative to lithium and cobalt in renewable battery storage systems. And believe it or not, it's eggshells. Murdoch University's Dr Manika Minakshi says when an eggshell is crushed and baked, its chemical composition changes to become an electrode or conductor of power. It can replace the expansive uh, lithium and cobalt. This eggshell material is, has its unique sweet spot uh, where it can be used for uh, storing the renewable energy, not at a high end. It can be used in any of the electric vehicles or any of the electronic gadgets. But on the other hand, it can be used in storing the renewable energy for stationary applications. Yeah, so what are you hoping to achieve by using eggshells instead of those other options? Uh, Our main goal is the sustainable development goal. That is the key enabling factor here to ensure access to an affordable, reliable and using a very sustainable material and modern energy for all at uh, uh, without compromising uh, anyone's life or child labor or using any toxic materials. Yeah. So what characteristics do the eggshells have to be able to replace something like lithium? Sure. If we are crushing that and it can be used as one of the electrodes, which is nothing but your calcium carbonate, it can be used straight away. Or we can just synthesize this eggshell at a high temperature. We can convert that from calcium carbonate to calcium oxide. 
where the structure is really very stable and it can be used for a lot of applications. But what uniquely we have done is we have used this for uh, the energy storage. To the best of my knowledge, I haven't seen anywhere the actual has been used as one of the electrodes in a battery system. Yeah. So pretty much how it works is the calcium oxidizes, oxidizes yeah. and recharges Correct. again. Correct, yeah. How exactly does the calcium recharge once it oxidizes? The calcium will just go from uh, 2 plus to 3 plus and then it comes back to 3 plus to 2 plus, yeah. So when we discharge the material, it goes into a different state. And when we charge the material, it will come back to its original, uh, the the oxidation state. So what does it mean is for every charge and discharge, the process is entirely reversible and calcium is perfectly enough to uh, do this cyclic process without losing any of the efficiency. And this is similar to the way that lithium and cobalt is used in battery storage. Correct. Yeah, correct. In terms of mechanism, it is very similar, but how the cobalt and lithium has been mined, it is completely a cumbersome process. And yeah, the cobalt mining and lithium mining are very, very expensive and it involves a lot of uh, uh, a child labor and all those things being involved. Yeah, which is, which is very sad. Yeah. So how realistic is it for us to be using eggshells as a rechargeable battery storage system in the real world? Will it remain in the lab or are we going to see this? Uh, no, we are not expecting this to be remain in the lab as long as if we can just get any good collaborative partners with the industry or even with the any egg industry. So we can simply replace with the uh, with the lithium and cobalt. And at the same time, I would also like to admit that when by simply replacing with lithium and cobalt, it's not going to serve the purpose for any high-end applications. It's a beautiful material, a zero-cost precursor, a sustainable material, affordable, everything fantastic. But here the voltage is quite low, which is of half the amount of the uh, energy density and the power density of what we are getting from the lithium battery. So this will be suitable for any stationary applications, like particularly in Perth, we have excellent sunshine over here and most of the residences are having a rooftop solar panel. So in the backyard, we can just put this actual uh, battery we're replacing the Tesla Powerwall battery, where it would be very much, very, very cheaper to store and then to uh, use it for their residential purposes. Any additional energy that they have, a uh, uh, surplus amount of the energy can be stored in the actual battery. If if this does come onto, onto the market, how many eggshells would you need for, say, one battery, one small, like, AA battery? Sure. Uh, for a AA battery, two to three eggshells would be sufficient enough to replace one AA battery. So in terms of getting this onto a more commercial scale, are we talking yes. years, months until this might be a reality? Maybe not in months, uh, but uh, say in a year or so, uh, if we are getting a, a good collaborative partner, uh, we do want to have a partners both from the battery industry and also from the egg farmers. So that would be a bit complementary. With the help of those, then we can just scale it up to the uh, industrial scale. 
That's Dr. Manika Manakshi from Murdoch University speaking with Sophie Johnson about the potential of using eggshells in batteries as a cost-effective alternative to lithium and cobalt. Really interesting stuff. It's 21 past 12 on the Country Hour. Earlier I asked you to sum up your 2023 in a sentence. I would love to get your take on this. 0448922604 is the text line. Matt has sent through his sentence. The lack of respect being shown to the agricultural industry is a disgrace. That's his summary of 2023. Would you agree with Matt? 0448922604 or do you maybe have a different way to sum up 2023 in a few words? Again, you can text 0448922604. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour. The owner of a troubled kaolin mine in Western Australia's Wheat Belt has announced some major changes to senior management and job cuts as it battles debts of more than $25 million. The mine is near Whippen, about 220 kilometres southeast of Perth. It started exporting kaolin through Fremantle and Bunbury ports last year. If you're not familiar with it, it's a soft white clay. It's used for things like ceramics, medicine, and paper production. The Wickerpen project has an estimated mine life of 73 years, but it's struggled with significant delays in the ramp-up stage. The company behind it is Perth-based WA Kalen, which told the stock market and uh, told the stock market yesterday that the company's founder Alf Baker will take over as managing director, and the CEO Andrew Sorensen will step back into a sales and marketing role. The company says staff numbers at the Wickham, at the Wickerpen mine are being optimised. We've reached out to the company to try to get clarification on what that means in terms of how many people will lose their jobs and we have not been able to secure an interview. It's 23 past 12 on the Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. And volunteers battling fires in the Esperance area have been commended for continuing under serious duress this week. As you've heard, 20-year-old Harry Stead died while responding to a bushfire near Coomabidjup on Tuesday. It's about 60 kilometres west of Esperance. There are fires in that area still in a, at an vice level but they are largely contained. Esperance Chief Bushfire Control Officer Phil Longmire says Harry Stead will be sorely missed. Harry is an ex like, uh, extremely, extremely likeable young man with a great sense of humour and, uh, and with his strong, strong family values and, and friends he will be sorely missed. Um, what is the impact of this tragedy on the community broadly, but also on the firefighters still battling flames on the ground? Oh, look, I think, I think this, as we know, it's got a huge impact on the uh, firefighters and the broader community. But I think more importantly, uh, this is insignificant compared to the tragedy to the family. Okay. And do you feel like the community rallied around the family? Oh, I think first and foremost is to respect the privacy around their family. Uh, that would be the, the most important thing. But when it's, when it's due, uh, there is no doubt that the community will rally strongly behind their family 
and it will be it will be long felt. Um, what has it been like for firefighters on the ground who had to fight the flames, but also had to cope with this tragedy? I think it's a credit to all the firefighters to continue under such duress and do a excellent job in containing it under such duress is 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 uh, was extremely challenging. And can you tell me a little bit more about the morale on the ground uh, after these few days? Oh, this, this is uh, you know it's, it's hard to estimate how devastating it actually is, but you know. As we move forward, no doubt this will uh, continue to to be hard felt. Look, I think it's really important to understand the the value that you know the risks that uh, when people people put their lives at risk to make sure the community stays safe um, without hesitation. So it's really important that people understand the the risks associated with this, and as you can see. The, the, the tragic circumstances that can occur. That's probably about uh, you know just making sure that you know the Stead family for the recognition of you know recognising the value of the Stead family in the community and and how uh, how important they've been to us and hopefully we can support them in any way we can. That's Esperance Chief Bushfire Control Officer Phil Longmire. He was speaking with Julia Bertolio. And again, our thoughts going out to the Stead family and the entire Esperance community. The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Talking weather very shortly, you'll hear from the Bureau of Meteorology for an overview of the next few days around the state. But those of us in the north, we're bracing for some pretty extreme temperatures this weekend, in particular around Marble Bar. It's about 180 kilometres south of Port Hedland, and the Bureau is forecasting 48 degrees tomorrow, cooling off to 47 on Sunday and Monday. Abby Staines is a station hand at Yarry Station. It's just northeast of Marble Bar. Abby, have you looked at the forecast for the weekend? Yes, I have. Looks quite hot to me, I must say. <laughs> the hottest I've ever experienced in my life, that's for sure. This, um, this would be the hottest you've experienced? Yeah, yeah. This is my first, the first time I've actually stayed over the whole summer at Yarry. So, yes, it'll be something new for me, that's for sure. Yeah, baptism of fire <laughs> for a, a Yarry summer season. What does it look like at, at Yarry? You're not far from Marble Bar. I don't know whether your temperature, will, will it be pretty similar to what, what they're forecasting at Marble Bar, do you think? Yes, I think usually it's um, slightly hotter at Yarry than it is at Marble Bar, from what I've been told. Oh, no, so you could um, be getting up to Cochran. sort of 50 degrees. Possibly, yes, hopefully not, but um, you never know. <laughs> so what do you do on a cattle station when you're getting up near 50 degrees for a couple of days over summer? Um, well, at the moment, everything, uh, we've kind of slowed down. Like, we're not doing any cattle work or anything. Um, it's more just, like, maintaining waters for cattle, um, doing a few improvements around the homestead with buildings and whatnot. Um, so it's nothing too 
intense at the moment is what I'd say. But I guess um, there is that important aspect of keeping the water up to the cattle. Um, so as you said, you're sort of checking waters and looking after that. How how do they cope? Do they respond differently when, you know, you're having weeks over 45? Yeah, well, um, we, I suppose one of the important things is making sure that, you know, all your bores and everything um, yield enough water to keep up with the consumption of the cattle. But yeah, they, I mean, they definitely drink more and it's something that we just make sure we keep a good eye on so that we know that there's definitely no empty tanks or solars or mills that aren't working. But yeah, that's kind of like our number one priority every day is checking all of our monitors and making sure all the tanks are full for the cattle. And what about your crew? <laughs> Usually you head down to a, a bit of a skeleton crew over summer. How many do you have at Yari at the moment? Yeah, so we have three people here at the moment, myself and two of the boys. Uh, one of them's from Norway as well. So he, he's he been over here for a couple of years, so he's acclimatised quite well now um, to the Australian weather. But, yeah, we kind of just keep everything going, ticking over over summer. Like I said before, making sure cattle have waters is the most important thing. Um, and then just a few odd jobs, you know, fixing stuff up that got broken over the season or uh, doing improvements for years to come. How do you keep cool? Because it kind of becomes a bit of a, a safety thing almost at this kind of weather. So how do you keep your staff and yourselves cool when you have day after day of, you know, 45 plus and, and nights around 30 degrees? Um, I suppose one of the big things is... Uh, definitely make sure you have your hat on when you're outside. Um, we, you know, during lunchtime, we, if we're at the homestead, we'll sometimes have a slightly longer lunch break during the heat of the day. And in that time, it's perfect, like go dunk in the pool or if you're out checking mills, dunk your head in a trough. You know, even if it's just a bucket of water that you throw on yourself, that works an absolute treat to keep yourself cool and then definitely like I always have you know my neck scarf on to keep the sun off me when I'm outside. It's good that your colleague is um, from Norway has had the chance to acclimatise because it would be a pretty um pretty rough introduction to a Pilbara summer at 49 degrees if you've come in from Norway. Oh absolutely and I suppose like one of the good things is that you know the people that are here at the moment you know, we've been here all year, so it has it has been just slowly building up. It's not like it went from a 30-degree day to all of a sudden 48 degrees. So I suppose we're a bit more acclimatised to it now as well. You're like Even frogs, in the in the, um, frogs in the boiling water. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> slowly what, cooking. Yeah. What about New Year's Eve? How do you celebrate uh, New Year's Eve and bring in 2024 out at Yarry? Um, well, this year, uh, me and one of the boys, we're just going to go up to Broome and spend a couple nights up there with our mates from Anna Plains. Well, it's been great to have you in the Pilbara, Abby. Thanks for chatting with us on the Country Hour. I hope you're able to keep cool um, over these next few days and, and keep Joe Stoat in check up at Anna Plains on New Year's Eve. <laughs> no worries. I sure will. Keep a good eye on her. Make, keep her out of mischief. <laughs> Thanks, Abby. Take care. 
No worries, thank you. That's Yari Station Hand, Abby Staines, trying to keep cool this weekend uh, as they celebrate the new year. Marble Bar's forecast is 46 degrees for today, 48 tomorrow and 47 on Sunday and Monday, staying up at about 45 for the next week. And I think Yarry might be a bit warmer than that as well. And I also checked, Marble Bar's actually been above 40 degrees since about early December. So I hope you've got aircon out there. Goodness me, it's 27 to 1. Uh, as far as weather goes in the Southwest Land Division, all the attention is on a possible thunderstorm, um, some thunderstorm activity. Joey Rawson is the duty forecaster today. And a short while ago, he was chatting with Richard Hudson about that trough. Yeah, so there's a, a mid-level trough that's approaching the southwest as we speak. Um, that trough is going to move over the southwest land division um, basically overnight into tomorrow. Um, and it is uh, going to bring some showers and thunderstorms, uh, mainly to the southern parts of uh, the southwest land division, so the southwest and, and the great southern and, and stretching all the way into kind of the south coast and southeast coast districts. Um, rainfall amounts with that are potentially going to be around the 10 to 20 millimetre mark later tonight, more around 10 millimetres because it is forming tonight. And then as it kind of moves south and southeast uh, during Saturday, um, yeah, there is a potential again for like around that sort of 10 to 20 millimetres if those thunderstorms do line up and, and get um, your area. So uh, potential for a bit of rain on Saturday out of that mid-level trough it is going to continue tracking out to the east on Sunday. Um, so the main focus uh, for rain will be over the goldfields and uh, mainly east of Kalgoorlie. So again, similar numbers expected uh, as far as rainfall goes, around 10 to 20 millimetres over the goldfields for Sunday. Um, a broad area of the estate will get some storms, so um, yeah, even parts of the southwest and all south coastal districts will get storms, um, but they're going to be very isolated and the most activity will certainly be over the goldfields for Sunday. Uh, that trough continues to move east on Monday, so all the shower and thunderstorm activity is going to be uh, well east of uh, Kalgoorlie and, and moving into the interior and Eucla. And by the time you get to Sunday, it's going to be cleared completely out of the southwest land division and we'll just have some showers and, and drizzle along the south coast, uh, mainly between sort of Albany and, and Eucla. So, um, yeah, the most interesting time is certainly from tonight uh, for the Southwest Land Division into tomorrow as that mid-level trough moves over. A couple of other things going on in the Southwest Land Division. Richard, we've got um, quite strong winds expected tonight over the Perth Hills and, and Foothills. So um, gusts potentially getting up to around that 80 to 90 kilometres per hour um, during the overnight morning period. So um, it certainly will be quite windy and there's also a fire weather warning out for the Perth Hills for today. So, uh, yeah, certainly be be careful with that. So, so it's a mixed that, bag really as far as the firefighters go. It could be bringing some rain, but it could also be bringing some strong winds. So if the winds come 
and the rains don't quite materialise, it could be a little bit hairy. Yeah, so most of the rain will be south of where the fire weather warning is now. Um, yeah, we're expecting those showers and thunderstorms to be you know, Perth and south uh, and the Perth Hills, um, you know, it's, it's just going to be on the border of getting some stuff. So um, certainly the, the fire weather issues will be most likely out of um, the showers and thunderstorms area. And um, yeah, but certainly those winds overnight are, are going to be quite strong, Richard. Before we get into the north, you mentioned that rain activity could be heading into the goldfields and even right out to the Euclid. Could it be going to some of those uh, stations, the pastoral properties that are really dry out on the Nullarbor? Do you reckon they're going to get any rain? Uh, yeah, there's certainly a bit of potential for that, but it is slipping to the south. And by the time you get uh, to some of those inland Nullarbor um, stations, there, there won't be a lot in it. So yeah. um, certainly the chance of some thunderstorms through those areas, but because it's so hot and dry, not expecting much to get to the actual rain gauges and to reach the ground. But um yeah, not not likely, but there could be some thunderstorm activity and well above those areas. And speaking of hot and dry, if we go to the north, wow, we've got some hot temperatures forecast up around, what, 48-ish for some spots around in the Pilbara? Yeah, it's uh, ridiculously hot. Um, and I think uh, for Marble Bar, we're going for 40, we were going for 48 for tomorrow, and I think that's going to be up a little bit, Richard. It's going to be 49 degrees, so uh, it's certainly really hot, and the the heat is going to sort of hang around for many days. It's um, for the next four or so days, temperatures around that marble bar are well above 45, and certainly hot nights as well. And places like Roeburn as well are going to have some quite hot temperatures. So uh, temperatures between that 40 and 45 degree mark. And, you know, that's nearer to the coast. So, yeah, certainly hot through there and, and again, hot nights. So we, we do have that heat wave warning in place uh, for those extended hot days and hot nights, Richard. What's in store for the north in the start of next week? Is there a reprieve? Let's firstly for the sort of Pilbara Gascoigne area. Uh, there's a little bit of reprieve um, in the heat when you get to around you know Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, so it will cool off a little bit, but it, but it's not a real you know massive cold change. It's you know going from temperatures from around 45 to um, high 30s or around 40. So I don't know if that it's is a reprieve. It's a cool what change for, <laughs> yeah. for Yarry Station. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so it's not, you know, this really cool dry air that's going to push up and bring the temperatures right down. It's just going to bring them down slightly. So um, although five degrees is a bit, if you're looking at, you know, 40 down to 35, but 45 down to 40 is not much. So uh, certainly expect hot conditions to continue. But moving more over the Kimberley area, um, there's a chance of getting those thunderstorms and showers reaching the ground, which gives a bit of welcome relief for the heat and certainly cools things down, Richard, when it's raining.
Yeah, we'll take any decrease uh, of those temperatures up here. That was Joey Rawson. He's the duty forecaster for the Bureau of Meteorology. Speaking earlier with Richard Hudson about the forecast over the next few days. It's 20 to 1. Uh, just quickly looking at rainfall. Nothing over 5 millimetres in the northern and eastern forecast districts for the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. In the south, a couple of mills around the southern coastal region. Over 5 mils, there was Jacob at 6 and Metler had five millimetres and in the Great Southern, Koji had two, Pingrup had three and Nibing hit five millimetres. ABC Radio, fire ban information. Now, due to the risk of fire, there is a total fire ban in place today for shires in or near the Perth metro region. That includes Armadale, Chittering, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Mundaring, Murray, Serpentine, Jaredale, Swan and 2J. During a total fire ban, they... You can have no open fires for the purposes of cooking, camping or outdoor entertainment. They're not allowed. That includes fire pits and bonfires. No hot work such as metalwork, grinding, welding, gas cutting is not allowed in the open air except for business and industry if regulatory conditions are met. No off-road activity using a four-wheel drive, quad bike, motorbike, bobcat or similar except for agricultural purposes. Uh, and for a full list of what you can and can't to do during a total fire ban, visit the Emergency WA website. 18 to 1. You're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Australia's aquaculture industry produces more than $2 billion worth of seafood each year. That's a lot of prawns and a lot of fish. And feeding them is a big business. But who makes the fish food? And what goes into fish food? Let's head to the Northern Territory to find out. G'day, I'm Matt Brand, and today I'm at Australia's largest barramundi farm. It's located near Humpty Doo in the Northern Territory, and each week it produces around 100 tonnes of fresh barramundi for the market, with more than 5 million fish on this farm at any given time. That's a lot of fish, and they eat a lot of food. So today I'm actually here to meet Dr Richard Smullen, who is from Ridley Corporation. It's the company that makes the fish food. Hey Matt, uh, I've been working for Ridley for 20 years now and uh, we have I think about 20 mills um, in the country. We make feed for more or less every livestock animal you can think of really, chickens and uh, sheep, cattle and of, of course fish and prawns which is uh, what we do. And uh, yeah, we, we, we're branching out all the time. I think we, we make a lot of dog food as well and uh, they even make food for laboratory rats for zoo animals, everything. So, if an animal needs a pellet, Ridley can do it. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. It's, it's, it's quite amazing, really. It's uh, and, and like in the aquaculture world, you know, it's like uh, there's always a farmer somewhere going, "Oh, I want to try and grow dewies or I want to grow uh, whiting. Uh, can you make a feed for that?" And you, you get that all the time. So it's it's quite diverse to say the least. <laughs> so that is the sound of of pellets dropping into the water. And we can see these little barramundis pop into the surface and enjoying their lunch. Yeah. What goes into fish food? Well, um, 
Fish food is uh, it's, it's a quite a diverse set of raw materials. If you like, if you start from the beginning, you have to have a pellet, and to get a pellet, you need to have a starch like a shell, if you like. So we use starch, which is usually wheat or something like that, and that creates a framework to build the pellet around. Because at the end of the day, you have this little pellet that's either going into a prawn pond or a barramundi um, pond or a salmon cage. And uh, it's got to carry all the nutrients for the fish. And it has, a, a, if you like, a matrix, which is made up of starch. So the first part is that matrix made up of wheat. And then uh, you have protein. That protein is what the animal uses for putting on muscle and for its bodily functions. So historically, the protein was really just 100% fish meal. Because fish meal in those days, when I first started, like it was about 30 years ago, in those days, the diets were made up of just fish meal, fish oil, which was the energy source, and wheat. And that's, you know, that matrix to hold it together. And then there was vitamins and minerals. Um, and nowadays, you know, we're using a lot more, uh, a, a, big, a bigger range of raw materials. Um, so Such you, as? Well, if you look at the protein, the fish meal is uh, slowly, uh, we're using less and less fish meal as the diets become more sustainable. Um, so we are using vegetable protein, which is the first thing. So in Australia, we have a lupin crop, and we use dehulled lupins. It's a very common protein source, and that's very digestible for fish. And then if you, you, you then can look at uh, land animal protein. So historically, um, you got the alarm going off in the background there. <laughs> I hope that's not us. <laughs> Welcome to the fish farm world. Yeah. Um, so historically, um, you know, you look at that product, like land animal protein, um, was a waste product and now it um, goes through nutrient recovery and it's treated as a high value raw material and it's really looked after and you, what you create is like poultry meal, uh, meat meal uh, which is a, and, and feather meal which is um, very very digestible and uh, very high quality and what we have is a circular economy product which is if you like a byproduct of human food and we're then taking a waste, the waste of that, because you know it's basically the frames which we don't eat, yep. and then we process that and recover all the nutrients and develop a very sustainable circular economy raw material. And does a pellet for barramundi differ to pellets for Atlantic salmon? Yeah. So if you like, it's um, it's the difference of like a chicken and a duck. They're both poultry, but they both have different nutritional requirements. Yep. So. Um, a salmon, for example, tends to want to, has a much higher fat diet than a barramundi. So in salmon, you tend to have similar amount of uh, fish oil to barramundi because that's the requirement of those animals. But the energy is just a, it's a source of fuel. And so we can use vegetable oil or, cano- or, or poultry oil as a fuel that the animal needs to burn. And, um, you know, different species uh, have different if you like, uh, energy requirements. So salmon have tend to have a higher energy diet, so more fat in the diet than a barramundi. Oh. And so it strikes me that your company would watch global markets like, like farmers do, keeping an eye on what the wheat price is doing absolutely. and the soy price and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a commodities group within, within Ridley Corporation, probably one of the biggest buyers of grain in, in Australia. And... Um, they, they very carefully watch things like canola prices and, and uh, wheat prices because, of course, it's not just fish food. It's, it's poultry as well yeah. um, and, and other, other um, stock food. 
And so um, they're monitoring those prices. Um, and then when you look at fish meal, uh, fish meal is a very, uh, very restricted uh, raw material from a point of view of um, the governments uh, in countries where, it's, where the fishing takes place control the quota. And so that, that's in order to stop overfishing and to maintain the stocks. So we have a sustainable supply of raw material. And so they will restrict uh, the fishing and uh, there'll be a quota. And if the demand is higher for that quota, then the price will go up. Goes up. And then everything follows. So if you have a very bad soya crop, everything's all linked up. If you have a very bad wheat crop, so that's why a lot of raw materials have gone up. And that's why, you know, normal consumers see this in the price of food uh, generally is going up a lot at the moment. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour, and we're speaking to Dr. Richard Smullen from Ridley Corporation. We're at the Humpty Doo Barramundi Farm, and we're learning about fish food and what goes into it. It strikes me as an industry that is always innovating, always looking to, to improve, do something a bit different. And I understand people like yourself, Richard, looking at the possibility of, of insects more and more. Yeah? Yeah, that's right. And it's not just insects, but that's, that's one of them. I mean... Um you know, fish eat insects. You know, you, you know, when you, if you go fishing, fly fishing is yeah, you're using an artificial insect, and uh, yeah, it's like one of these things that over the years, people have started to say, well, can we grow insects? Can we grow insects for animal food and and human food even? And uh, so now there's a whole industry uh, that's building building up um, globally, uh, and it's starting in Australia. Australia is a long way behind the rest of the world. Uh, but they're growing insects. Black soldier fly is the most common. And uh, the black soldier fly is then fed a diet which meets the nutritional requirements for, in, our, in our case, for growing barramundi or prawns. You know, so um, we've been working for quite a while uh, with manufacturers of insect meal. And um, it's, it's a growing industry. Mm. It's, it's in the infancy at the moment in Australia. But it's definitely a product which uh, the animals will grow very well on. And we have algal oil now, which is very common. Algal oil. Al algal oil. So it's basically they grow sure. algae and extract the oil from them. And it has very, very high omega-3. And so that means we use less fish oil and we can use algal oil now. Oh. And, and 20 years ago, there was none of that. It was very fringe, fringy thing, you know. Um, and now we we, we uh, got people growing seaweed not only for human consumption, but for use in stock feed and animal feed. Yeah, to reduce the methane. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So there's all sorts of innovations happening in the feed ingredient space. It's, it's um, amazing. I mean, Ridley itself, we work with CSIRO. We developed a bioflock uh, called Novak, and we've now improved that, and that's being fed to uh, prawns. And in Australia now, all the farms are using it. And um, you, know, you get improved growth, improved health, you know. And um, we're now looking at export for that raw material. So that was an Aussie-developed uh, raw material. And an Aussie company has taken it on and commercialized it. And, and to uh, be sent to farms around the hopefully, world. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, it's just starting, yeah. So we, we've got farms in the Pacific Islands who are using it now. And um, it's, it's becoming an exciting place. So... That raw material has been 10, 15 years in development. And that's the problem. It's, you have all this innovation, but it takes a long time. You know, you have to test it. You have to make sure it's, it's uh, safe 
to use, both for for the animals and the end consumer. Animals, the end consumer, for the the people who are making the feed, um, but it takes time. Aquaculture in Australia. Can I get finally your thoughts on on how it's going and what the next five, ten years might look like? <laughs> um, okay, when I first started, it was uh, you know this farm where we're at Humpty Doo now. I remember standing with Bob Richards at the far end of the farm, right down by the Adelaide River there, where all the crops are. Um, and it was a little tiny feed shed, and he had about, I don't know, maybe a couple of hundred tonnes of barramundi. And now, nearly 20 years later, he employs about 150 people. They've built this massive farm here, um, bringing jobs to the, to the territory, ancillary jobs as well, such as feed companies, you've got packaging, you've got engineers... You've got people with ice makers, you know, all being used. And it brings a huge... It's not just a farm, but everything else that's around it. And um, that's what we've seen, that growth. So aquaculture is, you know, the, the fastest growing sector in agriculture in the world. Not many people know this, but there's more farmed fish that are eaten than wild-caught fish in the world globally. You know, so that's... You know, tantamount to the growth of the industry, and Australia is a tiny proportion of what's out there globally. And Australians eat a, a huge amount of seafood, you know, and a lot of that's imported. And we could grow it all here. Thanks for spending time with the country out of today, Richard. Really that's appreciate it. Not a problem. That's Dr. Richard Smullen from Ridley Aquafeed. He was chatting with the NT Country Hour presenter Matt Bran at Australia's largest barramundi farm up near Humpty Doo in the Northern Territory. Six to one on the Country Hour. Michelle Stanley along and you've got a few more minutes if you'd like to get in touch. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Let me know how 2023 has looked for you. Maybe sum it up in a couple of words. A how 2023 has looked for you, your property, your business, and uh, let's reminisce for the last few minutes of the country hour because a lot can change in just a few months, and that's been the case in the wool industry in the last four months. In August, when the Australian Wool Production Forecasting Committee met, it predicted a dip in wool production because of looming drought conditions and depressed livestock prices. But now, to round out the year with some cheer, the committee is anticipating another 4 million kilograms of wool will be produced from our sheep. Stephen Hill chairs that committee. We landed on 328 million kilos, which is in Greasy, which is up 4 million kilos from the August meeting. And actually exactly the same figure, closing figure of last season. We're attributing this mainly to sort of maintaining reasonable season, seasonal conditions. Um, although it's average to dry, the sheep have been doing really well and our fears of you know, greater impact from El Nino coming through haven't been fully realised yet, um, especially with this um, late spring, early summer rain events of the last three, four, five weeks have really helped kick things along. And have people also been taking the opportunity with the lower prices being paid for sheep 
sheep and lambs at the moment to restock and replenish their flocks while prices are lower as well? Yeah, well, there's two points there. People are holding on to stock a bit longer, as you say, because um, it's it's more favourable to hang on to the wool than to take the current lower livestock and meat prices. And yes, some of, especially some of the larger farmers have taken the opportunity to, to buy in some new genetics and good, good stock at um, reasonably low levels. And is there any particular state that you've noticed as, I guess, holding things up there and adding to that four million kilogram lift in the, the greasy forecast? Is there any particular state that's leading the way there with wool production? Yeah, definitely. Um, New South Wales, which is the, the largest wool producing state in Australia, they've had a good lift of nearly 4%. And the other one that's had a lift is uh, South Australia of 2.6%. All the other states have had small decreases. Um, but just the, the weight of the, especially New South Wales, has um, held the, the national number. It's no secret that the wool market hasn't been at its best this year. Do you think that will turn people away from wool production or those figures that you're saying the lift is there, but it's not re- reflecting that people are moving away from wool at all? No, well, I think it's the exact opposite. I mean, wool prices aren't as great as they have been, but um, in my mind, and, and I guess producers, everyone always wants more, it's not too bad. And compared to other um, farm outputs, it's it's okay, especially the um, the livestock and meat prices. So they're choosing to, to hang on, shear, even if they're selling, they're shearing first. And also, um, we, we've touched on how things are tracking over on the eastern states, but how's Western Australia's wool production sitting? Western Australia, they've dropped 6.5%. They've got a bit of a split view over there. They've been quite pessimistic on the back of some um, policy issues and so forth. But there are some people there as well that um, see the opportunity to buy in new stock at favourable levels and continue with wool production. So it's not quite as bad as it was. And um, the sentiment in general's really changed nationally with this this recent rain. And probably there's there's also been a bounce in both wool and we keep talking about depressed sheep meat prices, but they've come off their lows in the last month or so and they're, they're um, improving. That's the Australian Wool Production Forecasting Committee Chair Stephen Hill. He was chatting with Cara Jeffrey. Hope you're ready for the ultimate party this New Year's Eve across the ABC. Let's do this, everyone! Catch the biggest Aussie acts, including Jessica Malboy, Genesis Owusu, Casey Donovan and loads more. Plus exclusive sneak peeks and a Gila family surprise. And two fireworks displays, audio described on ABC Radio. Happy New Year! Celebrate New Year on ABC TV, iView, Radio and the ABC Listen app. Well, that is it for the Country Hour for 2023. From everyone here on air and behind the scenes, thank you. Thank you to anyone who's taken part, a few who've shared your story. We've certainly celebrated some amazing wins. I've also walked through with you through some pretty difficult challenges for the industry as well. Belinda Varischetti and Richard Hudson work tirelessly alongside the reporters right across WA over east as well to bring you the latest rural news every single weekday and it is an honour to have your ears for an hour every day so thank you for joining us thank you for answering our calls for sending in your texts in 2023 and we hope to have you back again in 2024 to do it all over again. 
bit better. I'll be with you from 12 o'clock on New Year's Day on Monday, but have a lovely weekend. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.